Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith, the annoying voice of podcasting, and you're listening to the non-annoying Three Guys in a Flick. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. We mustn't dwell. No, not today. We can't. Not on Rex Manning Day. Oh, Rexy, you're so sexy. Hello, baby. Hi, what are you doing? Call me on my car phone with a genocide choir. You say I need a little of my hula hula. Say no more, money. Listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode Empire Records. Beware spoilers. Coming to you from the rooftop of Empire Records, my name is Don, and to my right, we have our comic book guy, John. Damn the man. And to my left, we have the professor, Ken. Hello, everybody. How are you guys doing tonight? I'm doing well. Good. I'm, I'm doing awesome. It's Rex Manning Day. Well, no, it's not Rex Manning Day, but we can uh, get excited for Rex Manning Day. How about that? Okay, that's true. Because Empire Records comes to us from our own comic book guy, and, you know, had he planned it better, we could have totally done this on Rex Manning Day. But, you know, <laughs> lessons learned, right? Lessons learned. I've never been known for thinking ahead. I, I believe that. Maybe 100%. he just wants Rex Manning Day to be every day. Ah, that is maybe, true. Maybe. Uh, speaking of Rex Manning Day and Empire Records, why are we talking about Empire Records? Uh, it's just a movie that's been stuck in the back of my brain for a little while now. You know, when I think of like 80s movies, like what symbolized the 80s, I think of Breakfast Club. When I think of a movie that symbolized the 90s, I always go right to Empire Records with that soundtrack. Um, that just was like all the music that I liked back then, the cast with all their problems. This movie almost feels to me like if you took Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off and put them together, you'd get this movie. If you took The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you feel like you would get Empire Records? If you merged them, this is the baby they'd have. Uh, do, you, do you see any of that? Not necessarily. Well, if you yeah, think about it, either. you've got all the characters who have all their own issues that they have to work through their issues, and it's all kind of set in one location, kind of like Breakfast Club. And then Ferris Bueller, where Ferris had this plan that he was kind of going through, same thing with Lucas. Lucas had that plan that he kind of figured would all work out in the end. There was a film critic who put it best in his review that he said, Empire Records is an amazing soundtrack with a so-so movie. When I first saw Empire Records, I enjoyed it. And I remember, for some reason, the soundtrack does stand out to me. But going back and watching it again last night, yeah, the soundtrack sucks. Okay. Well, you're over the 90s. Two words for you, buddy. Gin Blossoms. Mm. Cranberries. But the song is so mediocre. Mm. All right. So you had a couple of heavy hitters who turned out a mediocre product. Professor, had you ever seen Empire Records? Uh, the first time I saw Empire Records was last night. So the answer is no. He has not ever seen it. Did you get that this movie was actually written by a former Tower Records store employee about kind of just 
her life at the store. So a lot of it was supposed to be from anecdotes and stories from her fellow employees. No, I didn't know that, actually. If you kind of watch it knowing that you kind of can get the sense that this is coming from someone who's actually had that kind of retail experience. I almost feel like Clerks where, you know, Kevin Smith wrote from what he knew. This is kind of the same style. You know, it was written by someone who actually worked in a music store. Oh, very much so. But I mean, Clerks is, no, (laughs) fuck no. Empire Records felt very 90s. You know, it it is very dated and uh, the music and just the, the wardrobe and, you know, it did have all of the typical stereotypes of teenagers back then. I think that there are better films that gave us a better representation of that era at that time. Yeah. So. When, when you think of music back then, I don't know. I also lean a lot towards singles. See, that's what I think of when I think of a 90s uh, fun movie. Yeah. That was a, a big movie at that time. And I haven't watched that probably since the 90s. Singles is a great soundtrack. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. I don't think the movie holds up, but then again, it's been a long time since I've watched it as well, but definitely the soundtrack. Yeah, when some, you think of 90s movie soundtracks, singles is up there for sure. Yeah, we need a listener to submit that movie. They labeled this movie a dramedy since it's kind of the mixture of drama and comedy. And the question is, did they get either one right? Released on September 22nd, 1995, Empire Records was directed by Alan Moyle. Written by Carol Heikiken, and it stars Anthony LaPangia, Maxwell Calford, Debbie Mazar, Rory Cochran, Johnny Whitworth, Robin Tooney, Renee Zellweger, Liv Tyler, and a bunch of other actors. So how'd this movie do, Don? This movie was made for $10 million, and it brought in, wait, is that right? Yeah. $300,000? I read somewhere that their opening weekend, and, and Professor, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, they only got like 37000 in their opening weekend. I believe it. Yeah, maybe up to about 150000 Yeah. Well, you know, it opened on the same day as Showgirls. Now I, that should be in the helmet. Have you guys seen Showgirls? Once. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, for fuck's it's sake. Totally, it? It's totally your movie. Oh, oh I've seen it. I've seen it. I was a huge Saved by the Bell fan, so of course I had to see Showgirls. I know, right? I have to say that the only thing that I remember about the movie is the cover of it, you know, with Liv Tyler on the front in her blue sweater. That's the, that's the only thing I ever remembered about the movie. And it was always on the Lodar. Eh, maybe I'll get around to watching it someday. Never did. Speaking of Liv Tyler, what'd you think of the cast of this movie? I thought the cast was, I mean, at the time when it comes out, they could have been potentially stars they were all relatively newcomers that they had not necessarily had a lot of uh movies under their belts and outside of renee zellweger Liv tyler and maybe robin tooney you don't hear of a lot of the cast after that you know at the time and i was trying to look it up but you know 95 uh toby mcguire was uh gonna do this movie and i thought that yeah i could see a toby mcguire-esque uh character in this because i think he probably would have been aj they also had angelina jolie possibly to do this movie but they thought she was just too much for the movie right but i think debbie miser does well as deborah and the cast that they did pull together they're fine i mean they are run-of-the-mill like i said earlier you have your uh character archetypes and everyone fits it to a t so they were okay I would say, I would say it's very 
I hate to keep saying the word mediocre, but that's kind of what pops into my head when I now after rewatching it. But for some reason, I remember loving this movie. When you said let's watch Empire Records, I was like, yeah. Uh, a year, it's the nostalgia. A year or so ago, uh, my buddy Zach and I we were on a plane and it was on it, and I watched it. You know, and he was like, oh, it was great. But yeah, but for some reason, watching it again last night just kind of felt mediocre. <laughs> I I got the feeling that whoever cast this movie felt like all of them were going to go on to be big stars. The way they kind of gave them all equal parts. and They all kind of turned out to be bit players. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it, was a, it was a cast full of bit players uh, where nobody really stood out uh, outside of Rex Manning. So I guess uh, at the time, Rory Cochran was dating uh, Renee Zellweger. And so he helped get her the part. He encouraged her to audition for it. And then Coyote Shivers... Uh, apparently lied about his age. He looked like a teenager, but he was actually, I think, around 25, 26 years old, lied about his age to get the part. And then eventually it came out that he was married to Liv Tyler's mom. So technically he's Liv Tyler's stepdad. Yeah. yeah. Crazy, huh? What do you think of the length of this movie? I believe the movie was 90 minutes long. From what I've read, they've cut about between... Uh, 40 minutes to 60 minutes of footage from this movie. Originally, it was supposed to take place over two days, and then there was at least two or three other characters that they completely cut out of the movie, including, I guess, there was supposed to be something with a dog in the movie, because if you notice, the movie poster has a dog in the front of it, and nobody knows why there was a dog in the movie. Um, But I guess uh, Warren had a sister named Lily, and she was, I guess... Predominant. She was in a lot of the movie, and they completely cut her character out. There's one scene in the in the movie where uh, Joe takes Lucas into the back room and beats the hell out of him. Uh, I guess Lily is still in that scene. She's by the door. So there's a lot that they cut it. So it'll be interesting to see what what and why they cut it. The other thing too is, I guess, a lot of the footage that they had would have made the movie rated R mainly through uh, profanity. Yeah, and then they didn't like the idea of the teens being all stoners as well. Yeah, you know? they, they apparently the... you can eat it on film, but at the time you couldn't smoke it. Yeah, they want they cut all the smoking parts. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Which I remember thinking when Mark had that brownie and he goes into his gore induced uh, vision, I was thinking, where can I get me some of that pot? Guess what time it is? Uh, Rex Manning time. Oh, Rexy, you're so sexy. <laughs> Well, it's always Rex Manning time in my heart. I love that. But no, it's trivia time. You All right. Some trivia questions? All right. Lay it on me, big guy. Okay. Lucas chased the shoplifter outside and around the store until he finally caught the teenage boy. He identified himself as Warren, but what was his real name? His real name is never revealed in the movie. Um can't remember if that is true but professor is pretty spot on with this so as you like to say i'm gonna go ahead and copy his answer it's not revealed in his name it is never mentioned oh look at you i'm gonna thank you for that one professor (laughs) and i want i'm tempted to make either of you be specific on this next one but I'll, i'll take a rounded number how much money did lucas take from the store nine thousand dollars 
They, well, they keep saying $9,000. Oh, no, 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 no. It's $9,008, isn't it? I'm going to give you the point because you're closer. It's 9,104. 104. Because I think he says it twice. Oh, that's right. Because he, when he puts it down on the craps table. That's right. What name is Mark considering naming his future band? And you need to spell it. Um, I, oh, it's Mark and it's M A R C. Mm -hmm. That is correct. You both agree. Okay. Of the CDs that Warren stole, Lucas references which singer as being amongst the collection? Um, Primus. You got a guess, Ken? I don't remember. Whitney Houston. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, it's for his girlfriend. Yeah, for his girlfriend. When asked what the money is doing in Atlantic City, how did Lucas respond? That the money is being redistributed. Yep. The recirculating so are we gonna are we gonna split hairs uh, on that one i'll give that to you guys uh no shit you're gonna give it to us because it's fucking right what tv sitcom did rex manny star on i know do you know it's like family man or it, it's family something it's family man you're both wrong the family way well we got family, family right way. we did got you, family right yeah well i'm not giving that one to you well i get that but you don't have to be so fucking harsh about it. Right before Lucas starts chasing the shoplifter, what does he whisper to him? Don't drop the soap. No, that's before they take him away with the cops. I don't remember. No idea. The fat man walks alone. Oh, yes. Yes, he does. And for the final question, when Deb was giving out buttons, what did Mark's button say? Um, I don't know. What was it? It was Mark. It was Mark Sucks with oh, a C. Oh, Mark Sucks, right. At independent record store Empire Records in Delaware, employee Lucas has been tasked by store manager Joe with closing the store for the first time. While counting the day's receipts in Joe's office, he discovers the store is about to be sold and converted into a branch of Music Town, a large national chain. Determined to keep the store independent, Lucas hatches a plan. Taking the day's cash receipts of approximately 9000 to a casino in Atlantic City to quadruple it playing craps. Though successfully doubling the money on the first roll, he loses everything on the second. The following morning, Empire employees AJ and Marcus find Lucas, who confides in them about the previous night's events. Just before riding off on his motorcycle, Joe arrives and quickly receives frantic phone calls about the missing deposit from both the bank and the store's owner, Mitchell Beck. Other employees arrive, including overachieving high school student Corey and her uninhibited best friend Gina. Hostile employee Deb, who has survived an apparent suicide attempt, also arrives. Deb then goes into the bathroom and shaves her head. Upon Lucas's arrival, Joe confronts him about the missing deposit, and Lucas confirms the money was lost. Joe explains his anti-music town plan to the employees. He had to save enough money to become part owner of the store to save it, but will now be 9000 short as he must cover the missing money with Mitchell. So this movie opens up and we get Lucas in the office counting the money twice. He does all the things that like was in the rules not to do, which is uh, don't smoke the cigars, don't drink the alcohol, and don't play on the drums. That's right. He stumbles upon a contract to turn Empire Records into a music town, which is uh, a national chain, you know? Mm -hmm. um, what did you guys think of Lucas uh, when you first met him? 
like I said, I got the Ferris Bueller vibe from him in that, uh, you know, this whole luck is on his side and, you know, he's kind of got this plan in motion. Yeah. I liked uh, Roy Cochran when he was in Dazed and Confused. Uh, I liked his character and he plays a much more sober character in this one. Yeah. I thought he did fine. I want to ask you guys, uh, growing up, did you ever work like a retail position kind of like Lucas? No. Mm -mm. Uh, do you count pizza as retail? I mean, did you ever have to close a store? Oh yeah. I was gonna say, I've had that experience too when I worked at the comic book shop for so many years. And I think those kind of experiences make you realize you don't want to work retail the rest of your life. <laughs> what? Uh, did So are you saying, did you go gamble all uh, the money away one night? No, I just don't do well with customers. Oh, well, shocker. Um, yeah, I used to close up uh, the pizza parlor all the time. That's awesome. Did yeah. you get to finish off the pizza? I'd always just make me a pizza. Oh, that's right. awesome. Yeah. Lucas takes the money and he goes to Atlantic City and he... That's it all. We knew right away he was going to lose that money. I mean, that was obviously the big setup. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. And so he rolls once, you know, everything's on his side. He's having a good old time, lets it ride, and uh, rolls again and craps out. Well, I thought it was interesting, the setup of him walking in, and one of the first things he does is he pulls the slot machine, and the lady hits a jackpot. As the second thing he comes up, and I forget what he calls, or he calls out the number as he walks by the roulette table, that number comes up. So then he comes to the craps table and he immediately throws a seven. And what was it? The woman next to him says, you're cute. And then he craps out and she says, you're not so cute. Right. <laughs> and so the next morning we are introduced to AJ and Mark as they are on their way to work, Empire Records, and they see Lucas kind of sleeping on his motorcycle. It was an interesting setup, and I kind of, you know, understand that feeling of showing up to a retail place in the morning, waiting for the boss to show up so that everybody can get in. So I, I kind of understand that whole grouping outside that mentality. It definitely takes you back to when you did have jobs like that. But let me ask you this, guy. Mark seemed kind of the off character a little bit. Obviously, he's the stoner or something up with him. I think we all knew somebody like that growing up. Oh, I knew every single one of these people. Did you? Every single one of them. I knew. Even Joe. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's the one thing I thought this movie did pretty well, which is giving us examples of almost every kind of teenage clique or teenage, you know, stereotype of the 90s. So AJ and Mark talk to Lucas and Lucas tells him that he lost all the money and, you know, he's leaving. And he says, if I never said it was great to uh, meet you guys or, you know, hang out with you, I'm saying it now. And he takes off. And so AJ and Mark are like, what the fuck's going on here? But in the meantime, Joe's opening the store. So now we get to meet Joe, who I always kind of thought of as the uh, father figure to this ragtag bunch of teens that, you know, Empire Records kind of feels like they're home away from home. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. he, he's uh, Joe's kind of the protector. So uh, he gets a phone call and... Two phone calls. First one is about the bank not getting the money. Yep. And the second one is the owner hearing about the bank not getting the money. I love the other employees all running around trying to fake like they didn't know anything. Yeah, yeah. And you can tell that they kind of have a routine down. 
You know what I mean? They're they're getting ready to get the store open. We are now introduced to Corey and Gina, two high school girls, one, you know, uninhibited, the other uh, a goody good girl who's going to Harvard, has an amphetamine addiction. Well, right after that, then you um you have her explaining that she wants to take Rex that day. After that, we have AJ wants to tell Corey how he feels about her. And so we realize now that there is a juxtaposition where two people like different people. Right. And you knew it was going to kind of come to a head at the, the end. The only cliche I think that we were missing was the triangle of someone else wanting AJ. Yes. Or you could say Gina sleeping with Rex makes a triangle. Yeah, that's true. Not one that you were expecting. So they... uh they switched it on you. So they're getting the store ready to open, and uh, it's Rex Manning Day. What I dug about this when I saw it the first time, and I, and I still kind of dig about it, even though I wasn't you know, too thrilled about the soundtrack anymore, but the fact that they use music to convey the emotions or the feelings that we're feeling at the time, and they get to play whatever they want throughout the record store. And I like that, uh, the, the buzzer they make or, or the noise it makes when the song's over or it's time to stop. I always thought that was kind of funny. What I liked was it kind of gave the feeling of, you know, you walk into a tower records at the time and that's the kind of music you would hear, you know, different music, you know, playing at different times, all different types of music. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. And I love the listening booths. Yeah. And you know, I think it's really taken for granted now because all you have to do is pull out your fucking phone, type in a name, and you have whatever song you want. You know, growing up, we had to go to the record stores. We had to put on those big uh, headphones, and the only way we knew what music was coming out was at those record stores. You know what I mean? So um, I think that part of the film holds up, and I appreciate it about it because going back and looking... uh, at the movies around the time, not too many took place in a record store. We're also introduced at this time to the Rex Manning video. Oh, Rexy, you're so sexy. Hello, What did you guys think of Rex Manning? <laughs> he cracked me up. I guess he was, uh, the outfit at least was inspired by Tom Jones. Did you get that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as soon as I saw him. And then I get, I don't remember the name of the person, but uh, the person that was in charge of filming the video, did you hear the story behind that? They were only supposed to do a couple of seconds. Or, 17 seconds. Yeah, but they turned out shooting an entire video because they were having so much fun. Yeah, and they released the entire video on a special edition of, I think a special edition DVD, and now you can go to YouTube and actually watch the music video. Yeah. yeah. Which you've already done. Oh, of course, I downloaded it. Oh, Rexy, you're so sexy. Okay, John, I have a trivia question for you, which by the sounds of it, I'm, I'm assuming that you know, and well, fuck, I would hope that you know. Okay, Rex Manning Day, when is it? It is April 8th. Why is it? Because that is my wife's birthday. And it is also the day that they found Kurt Cobain dead. That is correct. Now we have Lucas. He shows up and Joe confronts him. What do you guys think of this whole thing? I'd like the interaction between the two of them. Where's the money? Where's the money? 
it was interesting. I'm surprised that Joe held his temper as long as he did. And it's not until later we find out why he did. Uh, but Lucas is a little fucking shit, man. I, I, I'm surprised he held out as long, too. I would have beat the fuck out of that kid. I, I do like the kind of the running gag that at least they had for the first half of the movie, which is Lucas couldn't leave the couch. So he carried the cushion with him yeah. everywhere. He kind of took the punishment well. You know, he just got to sit there. And, and I thought, you know, when you first meet Joe, that I thought for sure he was going to fly off the handle. But Me too. he was very calm about it. and Fatherly. Very much so. Is it after that that Deb comes in? Yeah, we see Corey getting some flowers, and then... Oh, yeah, from her father. And then Deb comes in, gives her the bird, and she heads straight to the bathroom. What would you think of Deb, Deborah, the character? I don't want to say it was typical. She comes in, and she's mad at the world. And I get it. People have a hard life. I'm not trying to take anything away from that. Uh, She comes in, and she immediately shaves her head. My first question is, why are you doing that at work? I was curious about that too. And she also had clippers. Where'd you get the clippers? Right. And then we find out that she tried to commit suicide. She is clearly the one with the emotional problems that are visible to everybody. You know, everyone else's emotional problems are kind of on the inside that come out through the movie, but hers are thrown in our face as soon as we meet her. I almost felt like she was almost the central point to this movie in that for her, you get from her character, especially when she talks about it later, is that she feels like she is an imperfect person in a perfect world, that everyone has perfect lives. And throughout the movie, she witnesses that everybody is fucked up in this movie. Everybody has problems. Everyone has issues. And that almost is like a healing to her. Um, so I was, I thought that, you know, I really liked her character. I felt like she was a great addition to this movie. Did you hear the story behind her shaving her head? Yeah. She walked in and she said she wanted to do it. So the production said, okay, go ahead and do it. Well, originally she was cast for the movie, but then the, uh, the producers started to have second thoughts thinking that she was a little too cute for the part and that she was too attractive. It was her idea to shave her head to show that she, you know, wasn't that person that they thought she was. They were originally thinking about replacing her. Yeah. Are you a fan of the actress at all? No. I liked her in the movie Craft. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. At all. The only thing I remember her in was The End of Days with Schwarzenegger, and she was easily the worst part about that movie. No. So. One thing I noticed this time, and I don't know if I've noticed it previously, but knowing, you know, what happens later on in the movie ahead of time, when she was shaving her head, every so often you could see her wrist come out of her sleeve with the bandages on her wrist. So it was pretty obvious what she had done. AJ shows some some empathy towards her and tries to get her to open up about it, but she wants nothing to do with it. Yeah, he kind of comes across as the white knight. I want to, you know, save you, uh, kind of being pushy about it. And Lucas walks up probably knowing what Deb tried to do and, um, you know, just knowing Deb, uh, diffuses it. Well, Sinead over a billion and sends her and sends AJ on his way. Right. Yeah. And then the two girls, of course, you know, it's going to go back and forth between these three. Yeah. Cause it's revealed that, uh, Gina and Corey don't get along with Deb. And so as everybody is getting ready for Rex Manning Day. Oh, Rexy, you're so sexy. 
You got that impromptu mosh pit. Yeah, and there's just like anarchy and chaos throughout the entire store. And did you guys notice that at any one time there was only like one person working the store? Mm-hmm. Everybody seems to be in that back room, the break room. Yeah, exactly. You know? That's what so. I think. Uh, I think it was Julie at some point in the movie asked, "Does anyone actually work at this store?" Yeah, that's what I kind of thought too. And hey, man, if you're getting paid to sit in the back room, that's the job for me. And then we meet Eddie. He brings a mixtape in for Mark. Mixtape and the brownie. When Eddie comes onto the screen, I immediately think, oh, look, it's Discount J. That's exactly what I think of. Mm-hmm. You know, I like the dance routine that they start up right after that with money. Yeah. Between Mark and Eddie when they're dancing. Gina dedicates this song to Lucas. Yep. And because he needs the money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought that was good. We have Joe revealing what he really wanted to do, but he can't. You know, it's funny. Again, kind of dates the movie, but the idea that he needed $9,000, I keep thinking that doesn't feel like a lot of money. Well, 95, it wasn't probably that much money, but I mean, how much could the store be worth? I feel like, you know, he could have sold uh, Lucas's bike and got maybe a thousand, two thousand. Maybe. Maybe. Um, did you notice that Lucas never apologizes? No. Never apologizes to Joe for doing this. Joe is distracted from the crisis due to a major store event. Rex Manning Day. Oh, Rexy, you're so sexy. Hello, the washed-up 1980s pop idol is holding an autograph session at the store for his fans and his latest album, Black with the Moor. The unenthused staff mock both Manning and the event, and ultimately many of the fans showing up to meet him are either older women or gay men. Though detained by Joe in his office, Lucas nevertheless apprehends a belligerent young shoplifter who identifies himself only as Warren Beatty. He is taken away by police but vows to return seeking revenge. Encouraged by Gina, Corey indulges her schoolgirl crush on Manning by attempting to seduce him but winds up humiliated and dejected. AJ then chooses this inopportune time to confess his love to Corey, which she rejects. After Gina and Corey argue, Gina has sex with Manning. When the staff discovers this, AJ attacks Manning. Gina reveals Corey's addiction to amphetamines. Corey hysterically trashes the store, and Joe tells Manning to leave. So what do you think of our introduction to Rex Manning? Oh, Rexy, you're so sexy. I love it. He was a uh, typical has-been pop icon doing autographs just to get the money. But I did like how the characters were supposed to be in love with this guy or they all knew this guy. You know what I mean? I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, what I thought was funny was all of the characters you're right were kind of excited or, you know, the fact that he was coming, but then later on when they look back at his, why do they even give a crap about this guy? He doesn't do their type of music. They really didn't care anything about his show. It was just the, the idea of the celebrity. Yeah, probably. That's what I ch- chalked it up to be. I mean, they even asked like Mark, who seemed like he was the most excited about it. You hate that type of music. During this time, we have a shoplifter in the store and we are introduced to Warren. I like this because Lucas notices it. He knows what's going on, and so he goes, puts on his shoes, he gets ready for the chase, and he's baiting him, right? And he says what he says. Well, I like right before he does it, he says, 
always play with their minds first. So uh, the chase ensues, and it ends with uh, Warren running into a car door. I guess the stunt man uh, or stunt kid, I don't know, that did this scene, uh, when he hit that door, he hit it so hard, he broke his ribs. It looked like there was some impact on that hit, Mm -hmm. which I thought was kind of funny. But yeah, so Lucas captures him. Uh, They take him back to Joe. And, you know, Joe's on the phone with the police and you can hear the cops or someone say, how old is he? And Joe goes, how old are you, kid? And then uh, Warren says something stupid like, I'll fucking kill you or spit on your face or whatever. And Joe just chalks it up to, yeah, he's a juvenile. (laughs) I like how Warren almost immediately becomes part of the cast. Like he's almost felt like he was accepted in that back room. Well, and I think it's because he was so young and all of those kids at some point or another could relate to him, mm-hmm. uh, especially Lucas. Being, and, being misfits probably in their own little ways. Yeah, yeah. And um, Joe asks him his name and it's Warren Beatty, so it's Warren throughout the whole thing. And, and I thought that was pretty funny. So we get time in the break room with Warren and Lucas and AJ. And I like how AJ had glued all the quarters to the ground. And Warren's like, what the fuck is this? You know what I mean? I don't think I have to explain my art to you, Warren. Yeah. One thing that I appreciated was, you know, while this is all is going on, you know, Rex Manning's out front and he's got that line of people that are coming up to greet him. Uh, One of the experiences I got a while back, thanks to my friend Apple, was I got to actually work with celebrities at, you know, a Comic-Con where I kind of sat down with them and took the money and set up each photo and set up it. And it's really like that for a lot of these celebrities, especially these celebrities whose careers peaked maybe 10 years before, 20 years before. You get all these people who you can just tell the celebrities are exhausted. You know, they've heard it all. They've seen it all. And, you know, they just want the day to be over. At any time, did you kind of feel for Rex or did you think he's just a prick the whole movie? No, I had no feeling for Rex Manning whatsoever. Mm. No, he was he was a dick. That's yeah. all. Especially with the chair. You know, I don't like this chair. Well, I mean, it was a very 90s chair. Yeah. If you notice, it was one of those triangle ones. And he was complaining that... about his haircut, but yet he's wearing like a pirate outfit. <laughs> I know. I know. The one thing I did enjoy about him was that he was doing some photos with Warren. <laughs> Yeah, he joined in on the the photo for the photo wall. Yeah. Uh, Is this before or after Joe goes in and starts banging on the drums? That's uh, It's after because I think during one of their lip sync uh, earlier on uh, is when Joe goes in and just starts beating on the drums. It happens right after this. Oh, right after? Yeah, we see how drearily it's going out front for Rex, and then we get Joe back in the office. And this is probably my favorite scene in the movie. Absolutely. So I don't know what that says about the movie. But, uh, oh, well, it just feels so you're right there with him when you want to let off some steam and it, the drums, right? He's playing to an ACDC song and everybody knows what he's doing. And I love how Lucas takes it upon himself to start lip syncing. Oh God, that was so fun. And AJ plays the air guitar and then out of nowhere, and this is my favorite part. Warren gets up and starts, you know, going crazy with it. And then it cuts to the store and the employees were singing and having a good time. And Joe's playing along with the drums. And yeah, so that's, that's my favorite scene of this movie. Then what happens? Mitchell shows up and he's like, where's the money? And he gives him a deposit bag just to stave him off for a couple of hours. And I think this shows so much about Joe. 
You know what I mean? He's going to bat for this kid. Yeah. He doesn't throw anybody under the bus. He re- yeah. He totally really cares for his staff, you know, and he takes some <laughs> papers and puts them in the uh, money bag and sends homeboy on his way. And I was thinking to myself, there's no way he put enough paper in there to make it feel like that there was $9,000 in there. <laughs> it just didn't look right. Mm-hmm. But that's me just being me. What do you think of the, well, first of all, of Corey demanding that she bring Rex his lunch and then that whole lunch scene. I took that as that's how Corey acts every time she wants something that she can't have. Throws a tantrum. Throws a tantrum. It makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, it might not be all her, really. Could have been the amphetamines Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, But Joe says, fine, you can take Rex's lunch. What did you guys think of this whole scene where... uh, Corey's going to go give it up to Rex for the first well, time. The first thing I kind of got from her and they kind of mentioned it early, especially with the flowers and all that, that, you know, Corey's not in control of her life, or at least she doesn't feel in control of her life. Everyone's making decisions for her. Her dad's telling her exactly what, you know, where he wants her to go and study and all this stuff. This is her act of rebellion. She's going to lose her virginity to Rex Manning. This is something that she's in control of. And I don't know what she expected. I mean, first of all, that room alone was hideous and horrible. And she's just going to have sex with that guy in that room and think it's going to be something beautiful. She must have thought that because she she goes in there and tries to make it happen. And Rex, you know, you got to kind of give him credit a little bit. He's trying not to pay attention at first. Mm-hmm. He he's even tries trying, to talk her out of it. He does. He says, are you sure you want to do this? And then... I thought it was funny, and I'll probably take shit for it, but when he leans back and unzips his pants and goes, rock and roll, I started <laughs> laughing so hard because if I was Rex Manning, I would have done the same fucking thing. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> you know, probably... as a celebrity, that's happened to him thousands of times. Yeah. That's what I'm guessing, too. Absolutely. So Corey wakes up, I guess, or realizes or asks herself, what the fuck am I doing? And she takes off. Well, he humiliated and sad. He never even stops to ask her what her age is, because I guess at the time, Liv Tyler was 17. So, you know, even the fact, you know, you're thinking nowadays with, you know, celebrities getting canceled for things that they did in the 80s and the 90s, this would have been his, you know, probably one of his things that come back to haunt him. Yeah. Well, I mean, he doesn't get off scot-free. Yeah. (laughs) Did you know that when... Uh, Corey runs away and goes to the roof. Uh, it's at a certain point in the movie. Do you know what point it is that she hits the roof? The middle. <laughs> no, he's he's referring to the time. The time. 4.20. When did AJ say that he was going to profess his love? To Two Corey? o'clock. You're close. One thirty. One thirty-seven. Oh, and she was up there at 137? It's at 137 in the movie that she actually shows up on the roof. Ah. He doesn't profess his love, I guess, until six minutes later, but she actually made it to the roof at 137. And the award for bad timing goes to AJ. Tells Corey that he's in love with her, but she's clearly upset and just really embarrassed about what just happened. What a train wreck. Yeah, you know, so obviously that's not going to go well. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't. And then we get uh, Corey. I think they, Corey and Gina went out. They to, have some harsh words. They went to lunch and have some harsh words because obviously Corey's upset about the whole Rex Manning thing. And Gina, I think, makes some comment about overdoing it. And 
you know, making such a big deal out of it. And so they go their separate ways. Yeah. I mean, Corey basically calls her best friend a slut. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And Gina calls her best friend a privileged drug addict. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, those are some pretty harsh words. Exactly. And how does Gina respond to all of it? She goes back to Rex. And they do it. On the photocopy machine, which I thought was funny when when the entire, like, uh, all the employees start hearing the noises coming from that room. And they Even all Joe. know. Yeah, and they all know what's going on. And then Corey shows up, and you can feel the tension. Didn't Joe say at one point, where's Gina? Yeah. Yeah, well, and then someone says, where's, no, someone says, where's Rex? And then someone says, where's Gina? <laughs> yeah. And so they're caught. Gina and Rex walk out of the room and everybody is there. And AJ lashes out. Well, first AJ lashes out and they're all holding AJ back. And Rex takes the dick move of punching AJ while he's being held. Yeah. He sucker punches the shit out of him. Yeah. Yeah. That's fucked up. Rex is a dick. And then uh, he makes the comment as Rex is, everybody, you know, tells Rex off about his music sucks and his haircut is horrible, blah, blah, blah. I lied about your haircut. Uh, as Rex is leaving, do you remember what he said to them? Fuck off? No, it's it's a, from a song. I don't remember what song it is. Something about fading away? Yeah, it's yeah. from The Who. Yeah. And it's, you should all just fade away. That's right. Joe also vents a little bit at, during this time as well about his situation that he's in. After this, we have Gina and Corey have their meltdown with each other. This is where Gina confronts uh, Corey about the drugs that she stores in her little metal container. The whole drug thing felt a little bit forced to me. It's almost like they just had to, you know, add something in for each character to have some flaw. And for her, they had to throw in the drugs. And right there, again, we, we mentioned earlier, but it took me to save by the bell when Jesse was on speed. Remember that was that episode? Do you remember what song she sings for Zach? Just that somebody she couldn't stop dancing or was it? Uh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. And yeah. she just kept repeating that over and over again. And after that episode, I remember but, thinking, fuck, I want to go see showgirls. No, she kept saying, I'm so excited. I'm so afraid. Oh, well, the figures he would know yeah. what she said. And then we have Corey. She uh, spills out into the record store and she starts tearing stuff down, having this atomic meltdown. That's right. And then everybody comes and grabs her. Right. Yeah, her little hissy fit again. Yeah. Again, it's probably her amphetamines. I appreciated the uh, tender moment that Deborah gives to Corey. She has her face in the water to settle her down a little bit. I thought that was uh, touching. And I kind of like what Deb says to her. You know, he said, she says, I thought I was the only one that was all fucked up. So it's nice to see that you guys are fucked up as I am. And by the way, were you really going to let your first time be with Rex Manning? In that room? Yeah, you know what I mean? And she kind of makes Corey realize or see what could have potentially happened. And, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Corey says, why are you being so nice to me? And then Deb's like, let's not ruin this hallmark moment and moves on. Right. But this is exactly what, you know, I was mentioning earlier in that I felt like this is where Deb's storyline kind of arced in that she, you know, has started out the movie thinking everyone's perfect. And now she has realized that even the most perfect girl in the store has her own issues. Yeah, sure. So I kind of liked that. Like I said, that was one of my favorite storylines of all the characters. Deb surprisingly attempts to cheer Corey up. 
and in return, she holds a mock funeral for Deb with the whole staff. The shoplifter Warren returns with a gun, ultimately loaded with blanks, and Lucas diffuses the situation by revealing that he himself was a troubled young youth until he was taken in and saved by Joe. He in turn offers Warren a job at the store. After the police leave, Lucas admits defeat and suggests confessing the truth about the missing money to Mitchell. However, the staff try to replace the missing money but can only raise $3,000. Suddenly inspired, Mark runs in front of the news crew covering the holdup, announcing on live TV a late-night benefit party at the store to save the Empire. An impromptu concert on the roof by Gina Amberco, another employee, raises funds so Joe can hand the money raised to Mitchell to buy the store. Corey finally finds a dejected AJ on the roof fixing the Empire record sign and confesses that she loves him too. He decides to attend art school in Boston to be near her while she attends Harvard. They kiss, and the staff ends the long day with a dance party on the roof. Roll credits. So, yeah, Corey and Deb were in the bathroom uh, consoling each other, trying, you know, well, Deb was consoling Corey. And so, uh, to show kindness back, I guess, Corey holds a funeral for Deb. This is actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie in that they're all dealing with their own issues and talking about their own issues. And here's Deb lying on the table saying, this is the worst fucking funeral ever. We also have Jane come back at this time, Rex's assistant that quit. And she asks Joe out on a date. So there is potential for Joe. A little bit of a happy silver lining somehow in his future. Yes, absolutely. And so while all of this is going on, uh, what struck me about this bit is while they're having the uh, funeral, uh, Mark's just getting pummeled out on the floor because, again, he's the only one fucking working. Mm-hmm. And then after this, Warren shows back up. And With this a bit. Big ass gun. Then this bit, I thought, yeah, I know he was shooting blanks, but what a fucking dick, right? He mm-hmm. goes in and he pulls a fucking gun. And um, how did he keep getting out of jail so quick? Uh, who knows? They probably let him go. Yeah, because he's a minor. Right, right. I think they even say that, right? Well, they say they that after the gun escorted. thing is that because he put blanks in the gun, they probably can't hold him. Oh. Could you imagine someone doing that today? Someone in the store would have pulled out the gun that they're carrying and shot him in the fucking head. Well, that was one of my first comments to Julie, I think, when we were watching this movie, is that with all of the shootings that have happened since this movie has come out, I don't know if they could make a scene like this. Oh, of course they can. You think they can did still you, do Did you like watch that? the uh, first episode of Stranger Things, episode four? I don't recall that one. Oh, yeah. Um, Hollywood doesn't care. You don't think they care? No. Okay. I mean, I think it depend. I think uh, the level of severity could fluctuate, but no, I don't. With all the gun violence and everything that's out now, I think filmmakers are more reluctant to do it, but I don't think that they would not not do it. Yeah. So I know that what, what you read kind of said that Lucas diffused it, but I thought Deb really is the one that diffused the whole situation when she came out and said that, you know, she had died, gone to rock and roll heaven and, you know, God really wants him to give her the gun. I thought it was Lucas because he talks about how difficult his younger life was and he ends up turning it into like a, a job interview almost type of thing. And then Joe kind of comes up from the side and calmly takes the gun out of yeah, calmly. town. Yeah, so. but it was the first person who got kind of in front between 
Warren and the gun and everything. It was Deb kind of stepped in front of the gun. Yeah, she did step in front of the gun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the we have the police taking him taking him away, and he's given a a, a badge from you know. AJ. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That says Warren on it. And then so after uh, Warren's taken away, everybody it- pitches in and wants to try to help Lucas, and everybody coughs up as much money as they can bear to give pretty much everything they had. Right, right. And then Joe has to, you know, he's going to have to cover it, which stops him from buying the record store. The interesting thing is this is, again, we're starting to get resolution on each character's issues. And Joe has, I don't know if he's admitted it here or admitted a little bit earlier, but it was something that Lucas was trying to get him to admit, something that Lucas had known for a while, which is, Joe wanted to own his own record store. He didn't want to work for anybody anymore. Uh, so Joe has now gotten to the resolution of, I may not be able to become a partner in this store. Uh, Cause he even says this to Mitchell later. Uh, I may not be able to become a partner in this store, but I will buy my own store eventually. Yeah. And if with the store turning into a music town, I mean, he would just rot away there. And so as they are trying to gather the money uh, they know they're short, and Mark has a brilliant idea. Uh, the news are there because of the holdup with Warren and, and all of that, and uh, Mark runs out and tells everybody on TV that they're going to have a party. Damn the man. Save the empire. And so people start showing up, and uh, a party ensues, and it turns out that they raise enough money, but it's in this moment that Joe says, you know what? Fuck it. I'm done. I quit. Mm-hmm. You, the Mit- store is yours now. Yeah. Mitchell shows up. Yeah. What, after Mitchell shows up. what do you think of Mitchell trying to run the store? Oh my, <laughs> that guy was fighting a no win battle. I like the scene that, uh, Mitchell is trying to get the register to work and he's like, doesn't anybody work here? And who comes up behind him and says, I do Warren Warren. And so, uh, you know, we had gotten information earlier that Gina had been wanted to be a singer, which is foreshadowing. And she, I tried, buddy. I tried. I was waiting for that one. And she, uh, you know, stated that I would be too embarrassed. I couldn't go to the audition, blah, 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 blah. And so of course there's a band playing on the roof. And of course, Burko's band. She has to sing the song. Sugar, I, sugar high. I thought she did really well. I liked that song. You would. You know, what's funny is that song was actually of the the music in the movie. That was one of the most popular songs, and they didn't put it on the soundtrack like that. They put the original song. It's a horrible song. You didn't like Sugar it, High? No, dude. I didn't like Sugar High. Okay. And so uh, the money is raised, the day is saved, and AJ is on the roof fixing the Empire Records sign still, first, I guess. First of all, when Joe hands Mitchell the jar of money, I didn't feel like there was $9,000 in that jar. Neither did I. But then there only had to be 6000 I guess, yeah, because they raised the three. But yeah, I didn't feel like they had enough money either. No. And so he hands it to him and he says, you count it. Because I don't think the people had come in handing him hundreds or anything. No, no. You saw fives and tens and ones in there. So, yeah, But he yeah. was like, I'll just take it, whatever it is. Yeah, because he's going to sell Empire Records to Joe. Mm-hmm. And so we find out that Joe gets to buy his record store. And in the meantime, uh, Corey is on the roof with everyone else, and she professes her love to AJ. And, you know, I guess back in 1995, you could... 
uh, go to an art college uh, to be closer to your girlfriend. But I guess today it would be called creepy. But I don't think those two would be destined forever. Well, two things I kind of got from this whole thing was one, when a or when uh, Corey goes up there and starts telling him, you know, you know, the fact that you probably don't love me anymore and blah, blah, blah. I felt like, is that the speed talking? Because she's kind of manic right now. <laughs> it very well could be, my friend. My second issue with that is, didn't she say earlier she didn't even know if she wanted to go to Harvard? That's what her dad wanted her to do. And that maybe she wanted to do something different. And now it seems like AJ has made this decision that he's going to go to art school because she's going to Harvard. Yeah. So that seemed like a that seemed like a weird kind of broken plot point to me. There was a moment where is it Lucas? He breaks the fourth wall. He talks to us. He basically says right as uh, right before uh, Corey goes up to the roof to profess her love, he says, "Perfect." Well, almost. And that's when uh, he's talking to the audience, and that's when she goes up and makes it perfect by professing her love. Ah, okay. So yes, the answer is yes. Did you like the movie ending with everybody dancing on the rooftop? I don't know how else you would end it. The ending is just kind of staring you in the face, right? Mm-hmm. It all takes place over one day, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Plenty of movies like that. It's great. Um, yes, John Ferris Bueller takes place in one day. And I, it felt fine, I guess. I wasn't a big fan of the song that was playing while it was ending and I didn't like the gin blossom song that came on afterwards, but you know, is what it is. I am curious to know after the credits or deep into the credits, we're out in front of the store and Mark and Eddie are chatting in front of the store. What purpose was that? Uh, To name the bands that should have been on the fucking soundtrack. What'd you think of Mark's interaction with Guar? Did you ever watch Guar back in the day? glimpses no because i was not interested at all i was never into their music but i had seen some of their videos and it i guess they actually filmed that at an actual concert for guar they had mark go up on stage film the whole thing and the audience didn't know what the hell was going on they didn't know it was being filmed for a movie yeah i'm curious to know did you have a character that you enjoyed over the others can i take it one step farther Besides the character you enjoyed, do you have one that you identify with? Or at least back in the 90s, who would you say you were most like? I don't know. I'd have to think about it. What about you? Well, for me, first of all, the character that, Professor, your, to answer your question, the character that I enjoyed most, I like Deb's character most. I just like the fact that she was tough, sarcastic, you know, imperfect. You know, the fact that she shaved her head, just, you know, very rebellious. I don't know why. I just, I really liked her character. Now, the character that I identified most probably in the 90s would be AJ. I think I was always trying to be the friend to everybody, you know, back then, trying to help everybody. You know, I always ended up in the friend zone with every girl that I was interested with because I was always trying to be there and be helpful for them. And so I always friend zoned myself. And I felt like kind of like, you know, as well as being the artistic type of person, I always felt kind of, you know, identified with him. Uh, what about you? Did you, which character did you enjoy? And is there a character you identified with in the nineties? I didn't identify with any of these, with any of these characters. That doesn't surprise me. Uh, which one did you enjoy? I really liked Lucas. I thought that he had, uh, some, uh, Zen like things that his character says. I also really loved his, uh, 
his dancing and, and uh, the the mini ACDC, you know, lip syncing thing that he was doing. I, I, I thought that was awesome. I loved his bit about being on the couch and how he finally gradually leaves the couch. Right. Right. Uh, I would probably have to agree with you. I would probably say Lucas, if anyone was, I guess, our lead technically in this film, it would have been Lucas. Uh, but I did like Joe. I liked how um, protective he was and that he really did care. There's a bit in there when he talks to Deb. Deb yeah. And we he doesn't, he doesn't try to fix her. He doesn't you know, try to get into her head or be, say something that he thinks she needs to hear. He just simply says, you know, I'm here if you need me and you're doing a good job. So, and you know, Deb might not have appreciated it, but I think that Joe felt that he was saying that from the heart. And so, yeah. Uh, if I had to identify with any of those characters in the nineties, um, Oh fuck. I don't know. You're Mark. Wow, you guys know me so well, both of you. Um, yeah, I don't know. I could see you identifying with Joe. I can see you being that type of person. What, nice? Nice, care about everybody else. and But beat the shit out of be, you if you fuck up? Yeah, be friendly, but not try to fix people. Yeah, I don't give a fuck if you're broken. I didn't break you. Work it out. Man up. That's what I would have said. I said, you tried to use a... Big, you know what? I'm not even going to do that. One of my favorite Joe lines, I think, in this or Joe moments in this entire movie was when Gina comes out with the whole Rex Manning thing when she had slept with him. And she's like, am I fired now, Joe? And he's like, I haven't fired anybody else today, have I? Right. You know, and that, then that goes to show you what kind of boss he is. You know, I mean, he's so much of a boss that uh, Gina comes out with a fucking apron on and nothing else. And immediately he's just like, go put some fucking clothes on. Right. That would have been the same way. Go put some fucking clothes on. And so that's going to wrap it up for Empire Records. Um, you know, we said earlier that not a lot of people went on to become huge, huge stars. Well, I think Liv Tyler went on to be in a big movie. Oh, fuck me. And now it's time for John's. Moment. This is the point in our podcast where I take whatever movie we are reviewing and compare it to the greatest movie or book series ever made. And this is the same case for Empire Records. But Empire Records is a difficult and yet somewhat simple movie to compare to Lord of the Rings. Every character in this movie is on a journey. Every one of them is the hero of their own story. And each one of them supports other characters through their dark times. So really, each one of our youths, and even Joe at times, is both Frodo and Sam, depending on what scene we're watching at that time. Beyond that, various characters showed other character qualities from Lord of the Rings. Lucas, the man with the plan, often gave off Gandalf vibes to me. With his simple wisdom and gentle guiding suggestions. Joe really cared about the kids working for him. He strived to protect Lucas. He was their leader. Therefore, he is our Aragorn. Merry and Pippin, well, I chose Mark and Eddie for that. They are the goofy side characters who mainly just are there for a bit of comedy. Sauron, the guy who's out to destroy the world, or in this case, Empire Records, 
converting to a music city, well, that would make Mitchell Beck, the store owner, our Sauron. And who in this movie is all about himself? Who is our Gollum? It's not too difficult to assign Rex Manning to that role. Oh, Rexy, you're so sexy. So what is our precious? What is our one ring? In Empire Records, there is something that haunts all of the characters in both a positive and negative way. In many ways, it haunts each character at different times, and it's the future. Each character is affected by future possibilities. For Joe, he hates his current situation and wants his own store in the future. For Lucas, he doesn't want his life to change and wants to save Empire Records. For AJ, it's being with Corey. For Corey, it's Harvard. For Gina, it's getting away from the small life and singing in a band. For Deborah, it's the crushing effect of tomorrow being the same as today. And for Mark, it's what's next for him. It's the future bearing down on all of them. And in the end, they accept and embrace what's next. So there you have it. My comparison between Empire Records and Lord of the Rings. Bring on the grades. Okay, just this once. Did you say that uh, Lucas was like Gandalf? I said he had Gandalf-like qualities. I like that. I, I didn't think about that, but as soon as you said that, when he's sitting there on the couch being his zen-like whatever, totally Gandalf. When he leaves on the motorcycle, I'm about to blow your mind, is when he left Aragorn and the Fellowship to go get the Rohirrim. Bam! You should, yeah, that's what I fucking thought. Uh, not bad. You had more of a cast to work with. Uh, Marion Pippin nailed it. You know, that that's kind of a no-brainer. That was good. Uh, Gollum for Manning. Yeah, I'll buy that too. But I think I'd kind of like to watch your version of it, I guess, at this point. So I'm going to give you a solid B-. minus. I'm kind of surprised that you did not talk about Empire Records as being, like, comparable to the Shire. I, I was thinking that you would have probably done that. I was also thinking that all of, all of the employees, they're the fellowship, but I I didn't hear you mention that either. Oh, for fuck's sakes. C (laughs) minus. But, um, I have to say, I'm, I'm impressed with your, uh, future ring comparison. I, I, I can, I can gel with that. Absolutely. And I think that the characters that you chose, uh, I think they're all rather fitting. I'm going to give you a, a big fat B. All right, a B and a B minus. That's not bad, buddy. Uh, I will take it. Okay, just real quick, though. Did you mention anything about Corey being Arwen? Arwen? No. Wow. Because she was there. I thought she was more of a Staring him in the face. Yeah. You want him? Come and claim him. And that was John's. moment all right what do you guys think you guys ready to rate this flick i'm ready to rate this flick damn the man okay i guess we're ready hey uh professor how do we do our ratings we do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks five fucks is a movie that we think is cinematic gold if somebody says you want to watch this movie fuck yeah i do a one fuck movie is fuck that you know it's one and done that's it and what's a zero a zero fuck movie is for shit's sake. What the hell was that? Yeah, th- it, this is not even worth 
giving a fuck because I want one hour and 30 minutes of my life back. Or in other words, we just don't give a fuck. Before we give the ratings, two weeks in a row, you have predicted accurately my rating. Three fucks. What am I giving to? What did I just say? Three fucks. Three fucks. Okay. I'm writing it down. Okay. All right. All right. All right. You want to go first? I'll go first. All right, buddy. You go first. Empire Records is a movie that I had little desire to see. I had I had plenty of time that I could have watched it in the past, but for whatever reason, I just never got around to it. It just didn't necessarily uh, scratch an itch for me. Seeing the movie, I had to have uh, a little bit more uh, emphasis that this is a lighthearted comedy movie and the fact that I'm a middle-aged man and I'm watching a bunch of kids, you know, I, I got to get into the spirit of the movie, if you will. And so I found all of the characters to be likable in their own ways. And I thought it was interesting that I got to have a fair amount of time with each one of the characters in their own little ways. Not a whole bunch really happens in the movie. The, the story arc is pretty light and I think that this is a movie more about moments that makes it enjoyable to watch. I think that the movie works well in the third act. I feel pretty good about the movie when we are in full stride during the third act. And, and I thought that that was pleasantly surprising to me. I wasn't expecting to feel any type of uh, enthusiasm based on what I had in the first half of the movie. The music was fun. I really enjoyed some of the music moments that I stated earlier in in the show and I have not a huge desire to see it again necessarily. So I'm giving this movie three fucks. Three fucks from the professor. I'm going to go ahead and go next because we got to build a drama of, you know, can I make it three for three? Uh, I thought empire records was a, it was an okay movie for some reason. I remember liking it more than I did when I watched it last night. Uh, when I first started it, I thought, oh, these guys want to be clerks, right? Very, very similar. A movie that happens within a day, out of place of employment, with characters and situations. I think that Empire Records was trying to be clerks in a music store. You know, for the cast that they had, they didn't have any uh, huge stars. In fact, like we said earlier, only only a couple of them have gone on to great success. Zellweger has won an Academy Award. Liv Tyler has been in, you know, tons of movies. The greatest movie she's ever been in, and I will go ahead and say this right now, is Armageddon. But that's four years later for her. Anyways, um, the I remember thinking that I liked the soundtrack more than I did and going back and listening to it last night. I guess it fit the movie at the time. I felt like it was a tame version of what 90s music was at the time. Um, the 90s has given us some great music, and it has also given us the gin blossoms. And unfortunately, this is what we got with Empire Records. The cast was so-so. I didn't like Deb's character, Gina's character. They were all they were all stereotypes of what was going on. Nothing really different was happening with these characters. And so 
it was a fine movie. It didn't have a score. It had needle drops, and sometimes that works really effective with a movie, and sometimes not so much. Overall, it's a nostalgic 90s movie with uh, stereotypical characters of the time, and it very much is a product of its time. And, you know, for, for that, it's, it's somewhat fun. And I am going to give Empire Records three solid fucks. You're up, tough guy. Would you like me to go next? What'd I just say? I guess I will go next. Okay, buddy, go ahead. As it has been said, Empire Records is a great soundtrack used for an okay movie. For me, I remember the first time I saw this movie, and I really enjoyed it. To me, it was like a mix of Breakfast Club meets Ferris Bueller. Maybe because I identified with this movie back in 1995, or maybe because... I was around the same age as the characters who were working the store at the time. Maybe I liked it because of the overall message. We all have problems. We're all fucked up and nobody has to be perfect to be perfect. The mix of comedy with drama or a dramedy definitely worked for this movie. At least it did for me. The cast was fun. Lots of unknowns and early entries for Liv and Renee. And who doesn't love to hate Rex Manning? I felt like Liv and Renee were the shining stars of the movie and really stood out. Everyone else was okay. And I will also say that I liked Robin Tooney's performance as well. I feel like they didn't give enough time in really developing her character more. My issues with the movie is one, it's slow, especially in the beginning. But I forgive that a bit because that's how I remember working retail, opening a shop, it felt slow and a snail's pace in the morning. They gave the beginning of the movie that store opening feeling. And two, at times it felt like many of the stories were a little hard to follow. The movie tried to take so many cliches from so many 80s and 90s teen movies and fit them into a 90 minute movie. A character with a plan will fix everything. A boy with a secret crush on a girl. A girl dealing with depression. A girl who wants out of her small life for something bigger. Someone with a secret drug addiction. Everybody has to rally to save something. And in the end, it's all tied up in a neat bow. It almost feels like every plot line from Saved by the Bell. But it still works in this movie. And maybe that's why fans connect with it. They find something in the characters to identify with. And the soundtrack, so much 90s fun. And I'm not ashamed to admit that I once owned the soundtrack to this movie, with the Cranberries being my favorite band included. So for those reasons, I'm giving Empire Records three fucks. It's possibly my favorite teen movie from the 90s, but not in my top five of teen movies overall. That would have to go to Breakfast Club, Some Kind of Wonderful, Weird Science, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and Legend of Billie Jean. Three fucks from the comic book guy. What'd I say? Three fucks. Yeah, so that makes me three for three. Three fucks from the comic book guy, along with three fucks from the professor and three fucks from myself. That gives Empire Records an average of, you guessed it, three fucks. Which ties it in the 23rd spot with Flash Gordon, The Untouchables, The Wolf of Wall Street, and The Running Man. It is slightly better than Tommy Boy, Solo, A Star Wars Story, and slightly worse than Catch Me If You Can, Bloodsport, and Red Dawn. There's some debatable movies in there. 
I agree. I agree. But that's the beauty of the average. And that's the beauty of all of our different opinions. It's been a while since we've all had the same score. All right. So that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Three Guys in a Flick. If you want to know which movie we will be reviewing next, please check out our website. Wait, I have to go to the website to see what we're reviewing next? Or you have a hint. Get a teaser. How how am I going to know what movie I'm supposed to watch? You know, Professor, that is a great question. Hey, John, where can you find that information at? Well, you'd be able to find that information at our website, threeguysinaflick.com, where we post the teaser for the next movie that we are reviewing, as well as all of our show notes, movie trivia, anything else that we kind of can fit into this site. You can also find us at all, uh, all of social media, as well as any place that hosts podcasts. All right. I just want to thank Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for always listening. Keep on listening. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Jill. And I want to thank everyone else who listens. Be sure to pass this along to a friend. If you keep listening, we'll keep recording. For Three Guys in a Flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Thanks for rocking out with us. Rex Manning. I left you a floater. Oh, thanks, buddy. You left Logan a floater, not me. My dad tore it apart. Shocker. I'll sleep, I think, three times during the movie. Uh, probably every time there was a fucking ad. You always ask the budget as soon as I'm done. Turning it around a little. You got to warn somebody before you want to turn around. You think you're going to surprise a motherfucker? This is where Gina confronts uh, Corey about the fit about the drugs that she stores in her little metal container. What kind of drugs are those? Amphetamines. <laughs> that for sure I'd get more of a struggle. It very well could. Have you ever done speed? No, I have not done speed. Oh, it's fucking awesome. <laughs> um, uh, listeners, he does not mean that. Well, what if I do? We're not endorsing drugs on our I'm show. Not, now, I'm not endorsing anything. I'm just saying it's fucking awesome. Okay. Is that an endorsement? Kind of sounds like an endorsement. <laughs> if, you, if you can't take a joke, well, fuck off. Okay? How about that? Yeah. That's, gonna, that's my stance, and I'm sticking to it. Was it devotion? I feel like it just happened because I asked you what the average was, and you looked at me like I was a fucking dumbass. Now, well, I, I, now, now I, yeah, no, I, I, I acknowledge it was a dumb fucking question, but... <laughs> Uh, do we have a porn name for this one? I was thinking about that, and Professor was too. Um, he called me last night and was, dude, what What am I going to do for this porn name? And I said, wait a minute. Professor, is this you? And no, it turned out it was someone else. The only thing I could think of, and it doesn't really work very well, is Empire Rectum. Empire Erections? Yeah. Erection Records? <laughs> Erection Records? Uh, no, I like Empire Erections. <laughs> Oh, look, the professor's turning red again. All right, fuck off. Good night. Ooh, I love you so much. Oh, baby.